When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. You know what we should do? What's that? Go camping again in the mountains and shoot ourselves some fresh elk liver. Cook it right there on the coals. Like Bronco Henry taught us. Add Bronco Henry to the pantheon of great unseen movie characters, along with Rebecca, Mort Guffman, and the Blair Witch. (laughs) Love the Blair Witch. That was Benedict Cumberbatch with Jesse Plemons in The Power of the Dog, director Jane Campion's first new feature in 12 years. We've got a review. The Power of the Dog is also the final film in our Jane Campion oeuvre review. We'll wrap up the series with our Campion Awards. That and more ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. You know, it would be some sort of cosmic irony, Josh, for our Jane Campion oeuvre review to conclude with the award for best lead performance going to Benedict Cumberbatch. I mean, not what anyone might have predicted, but I'll say this right now. It's on the table. It has to be. But Campion, of course, and her filmography filled with perhaps the greatest collection of female lead performances of any director. We will see how we come out in that category later. Campion's latest, The Power of the Dog, does get us all caught up on the director's eight feature films. We will share our picks for best lead and supporting performance, best scene, our favorite Campion moment, and our best picture. But first, that elk liver is ready to eat. So let's get to our review of The Power of the Dog. A man was made by patience and the odds against him. What kind of man would I be if I did not help my mother? Peter! If I did not save her. Sort of a lonesome place out here, Pete. Unless you get in the swing of things. What is it with Jane Campion and pianos, Adam? The instrument is at the center and in the title of her most well-regarded work, 1993's The Piano, and now in The Power of the Dog, A Baby Grand also features prominently. This piano sits at the center of a rustic mansion belonging to brothers Phil and George Burbank, who oversee a lucrative ranching operation in 1925 Montana. George, played by Jesse Plemons, has purchased the piano for his new wife, a young widow named Rose, played by Kirsten Dunst. After the wedding, Rose has moved into the house along with her college-age son, Peter, played by Cody Smith-McPhee. None of this sits well with Phil, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, a stomping, spur-jangling, guttural, growling man's man who takes a particular dislike to the artsy, effeminate Peter. Already, we have some familiar elements and themes from our Campion Ouvre at play. Unforgiving natural surroundings, 
dysfunctional family dynamics, competing visions of masculinity, a woman's place in a historically manly world, and how that reverberates into contemporary society. Since we've done our homework for this one, Adam, can't imagine anyone who's more prepared for The Power of the Dog, I thought we could start by placing the movie in the context of the overview. Is The Piano the Campion movie that The Power of the Dog is closest to, or did another title of hers come to mind more? And bonus question for you, what Campion film does Dog seem most removed from? A lot to chew on there. It's funny, Sophie watched The Power of the Dog with me, and just as it was getting started, she half-joked, but she was definitely half-serious, said, Why, Jane Campion? Everything I see about this movie is that it's about men. And it's a Western? She's like, this isn't why I watch Jane Campion. And I understood where she was coming from, but isn't that what makes Campion so fascinating as a filmmaker? If you think about, to name just a couple, Quentin Tarantino or Paul Thomas Anderson. I mean, when you watch their movies, we have both caught up with Licorice Pizza recently. And five minutes into that movie, if you knew nothing else about it, you'd say, oh, that's... That's a Paul Thomas Anderson film. Our last do review subject, Christopher Nolan, I think is probably similar in that regard. And with Campion, unless you're watching in a series like we have, and especially if you're watching these films as they come out with the distance between them that her movies typically have, I don't think there's any way that you'd think the same director who made An Angel at My Table Hmm. made this or made Portrait of a Lady or made Bright Star or In the Cut. Of course, seeing it within the context of these films, you can't help but see how this is very much a Jane Campion movie. It's probably most removed from Bright Star, which I think we agreed is her softest film. Her her most in a good lushly, way. Yeah, in a good way. I, I love Bright Star. It's her most lushly romantic film, though. Her least dangerous film, if you will. The piano comparison, I think, is unavoidable. The piano, yes. The mother-child, the new husband, the remote setting, the complicated power dynamics, desire and repression. It's, it's all here, but I might even go more towards something like Holy Smoke, in that there are psychological battles taking place here, not just between two characters like in that movie, Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel, but with multiple characters. Mm. Cumberbatch's Phil is very much trying to win and Dunst's character is very much losing unlike Winslet's character in Holy Smoke who certainly turns the tables on the man who thinks that he has control over her or who can dominate her but this is really one of the main reasons I think The Power of the Dog is such a remarkable film the complexities of all of these relationships Cumberbatch is the catalyst and a terrifying one very often, but there are layers to his relationships with his brother, played by Plemons, with Dunst, his sister-in-law, with his nephew, Smith McPhee, and with himself, and even with figures from his past that feel almost like they're present, that, that Campion just peels away and reveals so deliberately and so subtly over the course of this movie. I'm sensing 
uh, in the Uberview Awards, there might be kind of a surge for Holy Smoke here. I love that you go to that as a comparison for The Power of the Dog. Didn't occur to me, but I think you're dead on. I would agree with you that Bright Star is probably furthest from this for the very same reasons. It's that outlier, even more so in some ways than In the Cut for me among Campion's filmography. And it does have a genuine sweetness that whew, is rare Rarely found in this. Tough to find. This is a nasty, nasty film in some fascinating ways. And yeah, it's the probably easy answer, but I would say the piano is what it reminded me of the most, though for me, it was because of the thrill I got from watching this movie most matched that thrill I've had every time I've watched the piano, just feeling like I'm seeing someone um, at the peak of her powers controlling and collaborating with so many other, I mean, we're going to talk about the cinematography and Johnny Greenwood's score and, and we've already touched on the acting, you know, just being a director who is bringing all of these elements and the talents at the film's disposal together for a singular concentrated, perfectly executed purpose. And that to me is what we get in the power of the dog. And that's not to mean that, you know, there's not a bad movie in this bunch. We've seen the overview to my mind. And uh, I don't think she's been, you know, out in the wilderness in recent years. She hasn't made a feature film, but I'm a big fan of Top of the Lake, the miniseries that she was involved in. I think that's where she's done some work near, you know, what she's done in some of her greatest films. But this for me is what's most closely linked to the piano, just in the way it succeeds at what it is setting out to do. Now I say all that. And the next thing I want to get to is not so much about Campion, but it is about Cumberbatch. I think Adam, fair to say, maybe you're a slightly bigger fan of him than I am. I don't know. We've never really like wrestled with him. We probably touched on him here and there. I'll just say that I've always had a little bit of a reserve, um, where he's he seemed to me like always a showboat, even in roles that maybe aren't requiring that. And I didn't watch a ton of Sherlock. Um, my Debbie and my older daughter did, and I caught glimpses of it here and there. And that seemed like a perfect match to me because that Sherlock, from what I saw, was kind of a showboat too, right? He was showing off in his intelligence. And I think what we've got here is a perfect match of Cumberbatch, a showboat actor, in a showboat role. Because the more we learn about Phil, we learn that he is performing as well. Mm-hmm. But what a performance, even before we realize that. The ways... Start with the voice. You got a sore gut? No. You act like it pains you to hit two words together. I swear he's trying to do a riff on John Wayne purposefully in many line readings. That's that's very funny. It's a little more, you use the word terrifying, and I think that's right, threatening and, and rumbling mm-hmm. than John Wayne. But something about the cadence reminded me of John Wayne. At the same time, the way he whistles in certain scenes recalled uh, Robert Mitchum playing the false preacher in The Night of the Hunter. Um, Mitchum there had kind of a menacing purr, which I think Cumberbatch brings to but that's all, you know, secondary really to how he carries himself. I don't mm-hmm. know if I've ever seen anyone walk this ramrod straight yeah. across the screen and with such purpose. Like he is a beeline. He knows where he's going to go. He has a reason for going there and he doesn't have a second thought that he might need to be heading anywhere else. It's mm-hmm. just this, this supreme confidence about where he's going, what he means to do. Now that all sounds a little bit showy, but how about the little touches Cumberbatch gives us? The 
early scene where they're at the restaurant, where at this point, Kirsten Dunst just works. She runs this restaurant. They're not married yet. And he's brought the cowhands there for dinner. At the end, there's a slight moment between him and George where Cumberbatch just stands and delicately twirls the chair he had been sitting at. Um, That gives you this sense of there is more to this guy than the spurs we hear and the growling we hear. There's a delicacy to him that is somehow more disturbing. Mm -hmm. And of course, as the movie expands, we learn more about him, stuff we probably don't want to spoil. It just falls perfectly in line with what we um, maybe sensed about him. And that gives Cumberbatch a chance to explore more layers to this character, who is definitely not just like the villain in this movie. I don't think at all. Right. Well, you would have to label him that way, I think, because our sympathies lie with some other characters, certainly more than him. And he is a character who is usually, for no good reason that we can tell, threatening other characters. But you're right. There are, as I said, complexities to every character in this movie. I will note before I launch into my praise for Cumberbatch that I've long said here on the show that my sense of the size of a performance and your sense often seem to be at odds. So what you consider a little showboaty maybe isn't what I consider showboaty. That said, I think you're I think you're mostly right here. There is there is a size to Cumberbatch's performance here. And I think what really struck me the most is for being as threatening as he is, and sometimes it's with his words, it really is mostly just with his physicality. You touched on it a little bit, but it struck me, Josh, almost like Jane Campion might have given him the direction. I want you to be someone whose first impulse all the time is to assault everyone around you. It is always to assert your power and be prepared or act as if you are basically smacking them in the face the moment you interact with them or the moment you interact with them and they do something that you don't like Mm. or that puts you off or that harms you emotionally in some way. But, but here's the trick. You can't actually do it. At no point can you actually ever act on that maybe sadistic impulse. You will never in this movie actually be able to raise your hand at another character because he doesn't. That's one of the surprises of this movie. The big surprises for me is that despite how filled with dread and tension it is, and despite how often he is assaulting other characters, he never actually does hurt anyone else in a physical way. You you keep waiting for him to use his hands on other people the same way he uses his hands so skillfully when he's out acting as a cowboy, when he's working on the ranch, and he never does. And I think that ties to this double life he's leading, and I think there are multiple double lives here. One I'm thinking of in this context, Josh, is the more sophisticated, vulnerable side of him, the guy who we learn later studied the classics mm-hmm. at, I think it's Yale, right? At an Ivy League school. I believe so. it's so. almost like he's constantly trying to assert himself and he does have this natural talent for what it takes to function within this space. And yet it's maybe not his natural milieu. So he is someone who is always absolutely performing. And just that that sense of him through looks, through his countenance, through simply the way he sits sometimes it feels as if he is actually hurting the person across from him without ever actually doing it. 
Oh man, the way he sits, how about that shot of him in the barn, which is where he would retreat. This is his space, right? Just like man spreading as you've never seen anyone man spread in, in those, whatever it is he's wearing, you know, the, the chaps or whatever you call them. And I think that's the same scene where we don't quite see him because it's dark in the barn until he lights his cigarette and it kind of the, the, the flame illuminates his face. Mm -hmm. And that's a slap. That's, I love how you describe that. Lighting that cigarette is his slap. In a way, every time he enters a room, especially if Rose is in it and he's the one coming in, just entering the room is a slap. And as you're talking, it strikes me, yes, I think the only time we see him physically raise his hand is against a horse. In another one of the movies, indelible, haunting images, That's he right. just, he loses um, control and he takes it out on this horse and we see the animal retreating. I mean, you can only hope. And I imagine in this day and age, they, you know, they were very careful that the, the animal didn't actually experience anything, but from the camera's vantage point, this animal just like flies backwards. And we see this framed a couple of the searcher style. Oh yeah. Mise en scène moments where the, you know, we get a doorway framing the sky behind. Yeah. And I think directors just can't help themselves. That, how could you with that sky in the background, <laughs> yeah. New yeah. Zealand sky, not Montana, we should know, but still does the job. And yeah, this, this frantic panicked horse that Phil is going after, um, which only emphasizes what you're talking about. The horse is a, hu a huge beast, stronger mm -hmm. than him, taller than him, yet he has that um, presence and that threatening nature uh, to scare it as he's going after it. Yeah, my my favorite moment like that, Josh, is the one early in the film where they're riding, the brothers are riding with their men to go have that dinner or they're on their cattle drive and Phil pulls up to his brother, and tries to have, I guess, what constitutes a fairly meaningful conversation with his brother. And his brother really doesn't have anything to say back to him. And he calls him out on that, that he can't put two words together. And then he trots off on his horse and then just stops and turns suddenly and looks back at him. And just with that look, that's that's all you need. It's It's the only way in that moment he can properly express his disdain for his brother. And, you know, it's funny, we were talking about, of course, West Side Story last week on the show and Ansel Elgort and his presence. And I was way more forgiving of it, let's say, or in favor of it than you were because of the way I believed that just through his physicality and his presence that the men of the other gang would maybe be afraid of him, that the men within his own gang would look up to him and that they would listen to what he said. Well, how about the moment here after that dinner where Phil stands up? Mm. And every single immediately. other guy, except his brother, immediately gets up and without a word follows him out the door. That That is all he has to do to signal that it's time to go and nobody questions it for a second. And you do, as an actor, have to be able to inhabit that. For us to believe that and there to be no sense of falseness to it whatsoever. And there's just no falseness other than maybe the accent. I'm not. I'm not totally convinced or sure what... Cumberbatch is doing there, but I forgave it pretty quickly because the rest of it feels so authentic and so just commanding. Yeah. You mentioned Plemons a couple times there and just want to quickly touch on him. He doesn't have all that many scenes, fades a little bit to the background as the movie goes on, but he plays against Cumberbatch's presence so perfectly, I he think, does. because 
he doesn't just kind of wilt before Phil, but George is, you just get a sense, he's an entirely different man. And manliness yes. means something. This is all part of the exploration of what is what does it mean? What does masculinity mean here? Because it struck me that George is just as confident. But what he does is, let's go back to the movement. He moves softly. He moves leisurely. Um, he has the confidence, but it, it's thoughtfully held. And he's considering, should I go this way? Or should I go that way? Let me think about this. Let, let me give this some consideration. Uh, and maybe I'll actually do it in a bath because you know what? Baths are nice. It's civilized to take a bath. Yeah. And then yeah. Phil comes striding in like, what What are you What are you doing? And they have a great argument later about Phil stinking, you know? And I just love how Plemons plays off this. And I think he and Dunst have a couple of nice scenes together as well. I'd be really curious to hear what you made of Dunst's performance, Adam, because, you know, we've alluded to this, how at the start of the show, how strange it feels to have really a male lead in a mm -hmm. Campion film. And I think that was part of why I didn't initially, as I was watching, know what to make of Dunst's Rose, I, I I feel stronger about it now that I've had plenty of time to to think about it and sit with it. But in the moment, it was just so jarring to have again a female character in a supporting role, and I think particularly Rose being, um, I would just say, you know, not one of the indomitable Campion women, um, not Kate Winslet's Ruth or Holly Hunter's Ada, but maybe or even Carrie Fox's Janet Frame, but maybe something along the line of uh, Nicole Kidman's Isabel or Meg mm -hmm. Ryan's Franny, who are women who are a bit adrift and unsure of where their place is. Um, did that? Did Dunst work for you? Yeah, Dunst definitely worked for me. I agree with you that there is something, for lack of a better word, odd about watching a Campion movie and not have the major female character, and she is really the only major one here, not push back, to not take on that kind of Holly Hunter in the piano type persona or Kate Winslet in Holy Smoke and be a little bit stronger. And yet, I guess that that didn't bother me so much, Josh, because overall, I liked the layer she brought to the performance. And I think because you're just in a way asking for a different type of movie then. This is one in which that battle that psychological battle is paramount, and it's what really haunts this entire movie. And I think there is something that Dunst kind of gets at, the score gets at this, a certain ethereal quality. There is something almost supernatural, just almost supernatural, about Cumberbatch's presence hmm. and his ability to so unnerve her. The moment she steps foot in that house, she knows who he is, she knows how he is, and she knows that he is going to treat her with contempt, but it's almost like she becomes powerless the moment she steps foot in that house. And I guess I'm willing here to forgive that character's lack of lack of control or lack of strength, because it seems like that's what Campion here is most interested in exploring yeah. is is that exact dynamic when you have someone with the power that Cumberbatch's character has and how and how overwhelming and all-encompassing that can be and how you how you then do survive in that type of a scenario. That's a good way to put it. This this is the story being told and to insert a quote unquote campion 
heroine or lead female character in here would have just disrupted everything that's going on. And I do think Dunspring's it's it's sort of like this slowly sinking tragic sadness that weighs down increasingly on her as the film goes on. That's entirely appropriate. Uh, and I, I have to say, she and Cumberbatch have maybe, I think, the powerhouse scene in this movie, which has a haunting quality because it reminds me of Hitchcock. Things like Rebecca, even, but this is after she's moved in, she's trying to play this piano, feels the pressure George has put on her to become this different version of a wife. Here's a gender role element to the movie, right? Is George's expectations of her as a wife is that she's going to learn to play this piano um, in a way that will entertain guests. And we learned that she's previously played a piano at like um, a movie house, but different style. And so she's trying to relearn those songs. And here we get, as we watch her stumble, again, this cavernous mansion surrounded by like animals who have been hunted, hanging on the walls, all this Mm -hmm. manly stuff, leather chairs. And then you have this piano, you know, a, a more, a more feminine item, let's just say, than what is surrounding her. And she's struggling to play. And then we hear from upstairs, Phil, it's already been established. He has a banjo very skillfully plucking the same notes like he like he's got this mastered. You know, he knows how to do this and teasing her from upstairs that she can't accomplish this. And that is a haunting. He is literally haunting her to your supernatural point and I love the camera movement here. Here's where the Hitchcockian stuff comes in is that every time we're watching Rose, right? From maybe 20 feet away and we're moving in on her she's playing. Every time she stumbles, Campy just pauses the camera. It stops. Mm-hmm. And it just accentuates that same sense we have in our in our hearts is like, you can do it. You know, any, if your kids have ever taken piano lessons, it's that same feeling like you can do it. You can get through this piece and then they stop and you're like, Oh, and that's just accentuated by the camera movement. And it happens like three times. It's just brilliant. It is a brilliant scene. And how about the one speaking of haunting scenes where he is haunting her one later where she is out back and she thinks she's being unobserved and he's actually up looking out a window at her, but she can't even really see him. It's more that she can feel him there in in that space. And I'm going to go back to the piano and banjo scene just for a second, because another thing I love about that scene so much is that it's not just him sort of upstairs and her downstairs and him doing what she's trying to do, but much better than her. And so that oppressing her. I think Campion's playing with the class dynamic a little bit there, too, in this sort of double life aspect, in that she comes from this poorer background. Obviously, he thinks she's a cheap schemer. He calls her at one point for marrying his brother and sort of derides her for having that background of having to play in those movie halls, right, to make her money. And what is she doing? She's playing this gorgeous, way above her stature, way above her class baby grand piano yeah meanwhile he's playing that same song that belongs in those movie houses and he's playing it on a banjo which is this more kind of lower class type of oh on the ranch instrument you might play and she can't play it she can't pull it off she can't rise to the challenge meanwhile he with those amazing hands who can seem to do anything on the ranch he wants to do he plays it like a virtuoso, mm-hmm. you know? So, so there's, there's always that, that power dynamic at play there. Now you said something about Plemons I wanted to ask you about, which is you said he kind of fades into the background of the movie. And I understand 
that to some extent, the movie in those later chapters needed that to happen so that other character dynamics and relationships would come to the fore. That said, is it just because I liked Plemons Georgie so much and I liked the counter with some confidence, as you put it, the counter he is to Phil and also this relationship that he has with Rose and the the need they seem to fill for each other that I bemoaned him really kind of disappearing, not just fading into the background. He kind of disappears and the movie sort of brushes it off with a line about how, you know, oh, he's away this week. Yeah. And I think the implication is that he's on the road or he's traveling a lot. Or is there actually something sort of structurally off here that we do become so attached to that character and that being one of these key focal points of these relationships and then all of a sudden he's just gone. I really felt his absence. Yeah, I'm with you. I think for the same reasons, you know, we're both huge fans of Plemons and this is a particularly good performance of his, a particularly important character. It's a case where I would love to know how it's handled in the book. I don't think mm. either of us have mentioned yet. This is actually an adaptation. It's not, it can't be an original. Thomas Savage wrote the novel. Uh, oh boy, I should know this. I, I want to say in the 60s. It's yeah, I believe so. A couple decades old, at least. So, um, so maybe the book has more room to include George there. I think there's another conspicuous moment where at this point... Um, Treading lightly, but Phil has, for insidious reasons, taken Peter, the his step-nephew, Cody Smith-McPhee's character, under his wing. And there's a moment where uh, Phil and Peter are going out into the, um, to the range together. Mm -hmm. And um, George is sitting there. Rose protests. And George says, well, P you know, Phil is going to take, you know, take him with him today. And that was a moment where I felt what you're describing is like that. That doesn't seem that seems like we're just trying to come up with an excuse to move George out of the way. So I understand um, kind of that instinct. I sort of felt it. But I think to go back to the Peters character, he becomes crucially important in the final third of the movie. And at least if you're going to make a film around two hours, you're probably going to as one character rises, another is going to have to fall a little bit. Yeah. So I had the same feeling, but but um, it didn't particularly bother me. I, I want to jump back to, you know, some of the uh, more filmmaking elements that I briefly mentioned at the top and particularly the cinematography. As I said, this isn't Montana, uh, but it is New Zealand. I've not been to New Zealand. I have been to Montana and you could have fooled me. I mean, these skies are outrageous. And I think in particular, it is how cinematographer here, Ari Wagner, focuses on the massive clouds rolling across the open sky, right? That That's what Montana is, the big sky country. That's what you think of. And that is what we get here. And more importantly, they also capture, he and Campion also capture the morphing shadows that these clouds cast on the hills below that the characters are often gazing out at, right? Because Phil tells these stories about Bronco Henry when they used to go up in the hills and and these mythical stories and the cowhands are all looking up into those hills and we watch the shadows just shift. And it's not only gorgeous in like a mythical way, but also I think really captures the the shifting emotions, the shifting identities. You mentioned shifting desires by these characters. All of that is mirrored in the cinematography. Uh, and then real quickly, Johnny Greenwood's score. I like yeah. how deceptively delicate it is mm -hmm. because it has, you know, obviously he did 
Paul Thomas Anderson's There Will Be Blood. And there's there are elements of it that have the propulsiveness sure. of that score. Um, but also there's, I think I wrote about it and described it as a period simplicity, which is probably not quite right because obviously sophisticated music exists in other periods. But there's something about it being, maybe it comes back to the banjo. Um, it kind of has that sort of simplicity to it at the same time. So it's a it's a deceptively sophisticated piece of work as a score that I think is just perfect for the movie. I do think you're onto something in the way that score is at times sort of plaintive and to use your word delicate and yet it is also otherworldly to go back to what I was saying about the Cumberbatch character it feels appropriate for that character who looms over this entire film it does feel just laden with dread I would think for a good portion of this film when it is employed I didn't know it was Greenwood at all going in and then of course you hear you hear some bars of it and think, is this? Could it be? And it, it really is one of the, the best scores of the year. But I feel like I say that all the time with Greenwood. And the landscapes here really are remarkable. You use the word massive. And that is the word. Ari Wegner, the, the DP here, shoots these landscapes in a way that reflects the grandeur of these open spaces. And... The grandeur is overwhelmingly beautiful, and it's consistently rendered on such a large scale that it's actually oppressive. <laughs> rather, mm. rather than, I think, it lending this sense of comfort that we would usually think of wide open, gorgeous spaces, it's actually so large, and these characters are so often so small in the frame that it, it feels oppressive. It feels isolating. Yeah. The the loneliness of these characters is heightened because you are always aware of the distance between, again, characters, between different spaces in the foreground and the background. We have been in awe throughout this series at Campion's visual choices and her editing and also the lighting and the compositions. But this film is visually striking on another level it seems yeah it's it's a true western on top of mm -hmm. everything else like this is a real western that visually even stands along the greats i would say i i'm so glad you you liked it this much i i gotta say i figured you would but after it hit you know got all the critical praise since it debuted at i forget which festival a couple months ago but then after it hit netflix you got you started to see to see some shoulder shrugs popping up here and there uh -huh. and i i just started getting more and more nervous like are oh, you please. subtweeting our producer sam oh, right now um oh i had i have repressed that so uh -huh. there is there are some sam responses to movies i just bury deep down in my soul because i can't <laughs> i can't recognize them and i'm afraid this is one of them uh, but he wasn't alone sam wasn't alone you know there were no. others who were and he didn't he didn't slam the film at all he he you know, he had a very sort yeah. of generous, I've struggled with this. <laughs> a generous dismissal. A generous it was dismissal. Kind of, it but, was kind of a dismissal. But for me, this is a movie that I look forward to seeing again. Because oh, you, yes. you, you know all of those details are there and all of the connections. Hopefully some of them you made on the first watch will all become even more evident on the second. And some of those, some of those layers and some of those secrets and some of the character behavior that maybe in the moment... 
you don't quite follow will unpack itself for you on that second watch. That's absolutely true. I, I squeezed in a second watch and I'm, I've never been known as someone who like in any mystery movie, I'm putting the mystery ahead together while I, yeah. while I'm watching it, you know, it usually takes me a little bit to catch up. And that was the case here. Like the, the stuff that clicks, which we've danced around for good reason, we don't want to spoil it. Mm-hmm. Um, in the moments after this movie ends on a rewatch are so brilliantly laid out. I'm sure others will see it the first time through, but yeah, the, then you can appreciate the construction of this thing even more, which is just, I think, just immaculate. The Power of the Dog is currently playing in limited theatrical release, and you can see it exclusively on Netflix. Will The Power of the Dog win any of our Campion Overview awards? Our picks plus Massacre Theater are next. Stay with us. Become such a hot shot actor. I'm a showman. That's what I'm meant to do. You're listening to Film Spotting, and I'm getting deja vu here, Josh. I think it was maybe two weeks ago we played a clip from the Licorice Pizza trailer promising that we would get to a review of the new Paul Thomas Anderson film. This time we mean it. It's happening. Next week, we will discuss licorice pizza it's happening because we've both actually seen it this isn't a case of you know plans to see it or you've seen it i've seen it we're good to go we have a week to sit and process Mm -hmm. a paul thomas anderson film which is always helpful and yeah we're going to do it next week that's right we have both seen it on the big screen lucky enough to have that opportunity and we both may even get a chance to see it again though not on the big screen, but a second viewing of any Paul Thomas Anderson film prior to review, I think, is is always what the doctor ordered. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, you're going to pick up so much just by watching it a second time. Licorice Pizza opens wide in theaters on December 24th. Also, next week, we will talk through our Chicago Film Critics Association end-of-year ballots. We will share our picks for our favorite performances of the year and more. How many movies, Josh? Are you planning to cram in this weekend? Oh my gosh! I mean, the, I, we were talking a little bit before pressing record about how disparate the choices for best films of the year seem to be this year in 2021. And for me, that's just produced more anxiety. Usually at this time, I feel like, okay, I've got maybe ten films that others are really crazy about that I didn't manage to get to. Let's try to knock those out. Now there's like every list has a handful. So I'm trying to do, I've had a couple, two movies a day, days that have been helpful. I've knocked out a couple in the last week that I really wanted to get to have some plans this weekend, a fairly miraculously open weekend for the holiday season. Nice. So I'm hoping to get a couple more in. How are you feeling? I'm feeling terrible. 
Of course. <laughs> I'm feeling like I have 25 <laughs> movies to see and not nearly enough hours in the day or days, unfortunately, but I'm going to do my best. I've got my list. I'm prioritizing it. And, you know, every year around this time, we always bemoan that we're trying to fit in so many movies to get ready for the top 10 films of the year roundtable, the two-part epic show that that is. And we say, well, we should just really take at least a week off in December. We should just take the entire month of December off, Josh. I'm putting it out there now. Let's just do that. The whole (laughs) month, we're just going to watch movies and we'll get someone else to sit here and host the show. Can we do that? I mean... I'd be all for it. It would definitely make it easier to catch up on these titles. Okay. Well, if you'd like to fill in for us next December, send us an email, feedback at filmspotting.net. Now that my demands have been met, I have had a chance to see Licorice Pizza. We can release the results of our PTA poll, which asked you, what is your favorite, not the best, Paul Thomas Anderson film? We will share those results and your feedback on next week's show. You can vote in our current deeply flawed film spotting poll now at filmspotting.net we want to know we always ask this around this time of year what is your favorite film of 2021 and the flaw comes into play josh in that usually there are some movies like some of the titles we're going to give you that have stood the test of time over the course of the year they're the titles that you start to see right about now popping up on some top 10 lists or people still talk about on social media is having a lot of affection for, but there's still a bunch of movies to our last point that we haven't seen yet that we know we need to catch up with some other big releases that haven't hit theaters yet. And that means we're going to leave out some titles that probably will pop up on our year end list, but we do, we do what we can with the movies we've got, Josh. And to your point, one option here kind of falls in the in-between space. It's West side story. So that opens This weekend, some people, a lot of people will have a chance to see it, but maybe not everyone before voting. But we did want to include it, feel like that's going to be an important year-end release. But some of these others, yeah, listeners have had a chance to see for a while now. Dune, The French Dispatch, The Green Knight, Passing, Pig, The Power of the Dog, and Summer of Soul. We are, of course, going to include the option of other as well. Our producer, Sam, who came up with this poll question suggested in our Slack, if you recall, that Dune was probably going to walk away with this. Not just win, but sort of win handily. And other would take a distant second place, which makes sense because we're really thinking about every single other film that came out this year besides these seven or eight. Did you think Sam was on to something when he suggested that, or did you think he was crazy? I don't think he's crazy. I mean, that that's probably the best bet. But can I give you two titles there that I think might give Dune a run for the money? Please. The Green Knight came out a while ago and a lot of passion for that movie from a lot of quarters. And how about Summer of Soul? Didn't mm-hmm. Summer of Soul recently, did it win our poll about best music documentaries of I the think last 10 did. years or something like yeah. that? I mean, people are wild about it. So I, I would, I'll just put it this way. I would be not be shocked if either of those landed in second place or might even overtake Dune. Well, Summer of Soul, currently, Josh, is in seventh place. Now, it's pretty close. They're kind of packed together, but it's in seventh. And I would have thought Summer of Soul would have done much better than a movie like The Green Knight. I understand why it's here, and I think it does belong in this poll question, but I would have reversed those and thought that maybe The Green Knight was in seventh place and Summer of Soul would be where The Green Knight is. It's in third 
11 percent of the vote. So you're on to something there. And speaking of being on to something, Sam did correctly call it so far. 29 percent Dune in first place. Other is in second place. We will see if these numbers hold or if your vote perhaps sways it. You can vote now and leave a comment at filmspotting.net. A couple of weeks ago, we had five Blu-ray copies to give away for the new religious horror film Saint Maud, which is available now on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital. The debut film from writer-director Rose Glass is a shortlisted Golden Brick nominee, and we're excited to give five copies away to five random winners. We asked them this question, which proved to be quite hard, And on one level, a little bit confusing. I'll get to that after we share the winners. We asked, which is your favorite Golden Brick winning film? So we've had 11 or so years of handing out this award going back to 2009 and the Duncan Jones film Moon. Of all the movies we have anointed Golden Brick champion, which one is your favorite, Josh? Let's read the winners. Our first winner is Jesse Van Hoy from Shoreline, Washington. Jesse said, I have to go with the act of killing. I had never seen a documentary like it before or since. Austin Holden said simply, Columbus, the Koganata film. Another winner here is Rich Sinfio. My favorite Golden Brick winner is Tangerine. I'm a queer person and seeing queer stories in film is very important, especially when it involves trans women of color. The actresses who play Cindy and Alexandra give incredible performances, and the movie as a whole highlights the struggles trans women of color often face, especially when they are sex workers. The bond queer people develop as they find their chosen family is so important for young queer audiences to see, and I feel like this movie shows that no matter how much abuse the world gives you, your chosen family will always be there to lend you a wig after you encountered the worst of American society. It is one of my most recommended films whenever anyone asks me for one, and it gave us Sean Baker at his best. Thank you, Rich, for that. John T. in Riverdale, New Jersey says the correct answer is Dogtooth. Or is it Moon? It's definitely Moon, but it's also definitely Dogtooth. Okay, my final answer is Dogtooth, John says. And our last winner is D. Aaron Schweigart from Bellevue, Kentucky. My favorite Golden Brick winner that I've seen is probably Moon, though Sound of Metal was close. And even though you didn't ask, my least favorite is Dogtooth, which is one of the times I most passionately disagree with the host regarding my feelings of the film. I hated it. I don't know. That just seems unnecessary to throw that in there. Yeah, I almost want to throw out his prize for that. But Aaron was one of the five randomly chosen winners. We appreciate everyone who participated in the contest To all of our winners, email us, feedback at filmspotting.net, include your mailing address, and we will get that copy of St. Maud sent out to you. I said it was a little confusing because several people, Josh, submitted answers that were not actually Golden Brick winning films, though they were Golden Brick nominated films. I think we specified winning films, not just films that were nominated. And in some cases, we got entries that were other films by the directors mm. of Golden Brick winning films. And that's that's fine. They were all eligible. Turns out they, they weren't randomly selected. But for me, they were all eligible. It means that they so associate that film and that filmmaker's work with our show, Josh, or at least that's how I'm choosing to interpret it, that it's all good. Well, and I just like, it kind of shows you we do pick a winner, but really the whole idea of having this contest, if you want to call it that, is to raise the profile of all the films we nominate. So if that's making these films kind of seep into the consciousness of listeners, even if they didn't 
happen to win, all the better. Well, we were both quite high on the power of the dog, reviewing it in our last segment. And if you can't get enough Campion over on our sister podcast this week, it's part one of their model males pairing. They've got the power of the dog with 1972's Deliverance from director John Borman. Of course, Burt Reynolds stars, Ned Beatty, John Voight, Ronnie Cox, and yes, in both films, banjos. But Josh, this being the next picture show, they went so much deeper than just the banjos connection. Yeah, we've got some uh, explanation here from Genevieve Kosky, co-host and producer. She says, Jane Campion's new Power of the Dog includes a tense passage involving a banjo that plays as a nod to the 72 John Portman classic, but the two films shared thematic concerns go much deeper than banjo duels. Chief among those is the theme of toxic masculinity and its myriad manifestations, which we explore this week via Deliverance's four male archetypes and their misbegotten river adventure. A movie, Adam... How long ago now was it that we did, was it a yeah. sacred cow? I, I forget was, what category, but. I was literally going to ask you the same thing. I know we discussed that on the show, but why did we do it and when did we do it? Um, I think I know. Could it have been Burt Reynolds passing? Is that possible? It might have been Burt Reynolds passing. Okay. Okay. Let's Either go with way, that. Either way, a movie that I think, I, I will just say, was much more than sort of the reputation that sure. I always knew. My impression of the reputation, let's say. It was a very different movie than I thought I was getting into. And maybe I can say like a better one too. Really good film, Deliverance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely worth seeing. If you haven't, the next picture show is hosted not only by Genevieve Kosky, but Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, and Scott Tobias. New episodes post every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find more info at nextpictureshow.net. One way you can support our show is to join the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. It's five bucks a month. Here's what you get. Ad-free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early show downloads, live pre-sales and discounts, a merch discount, and our monthly bonus episodes. Last month for November, we did volume two of Ask Us Anything. Basically talked about um, how much we like to fight and a yeah. few other topics. <laughs> so. If you've, if you've always been curious about that, you can hear it in our bonus episode for November this month. We're going to expand upon part of next week's show. So we're both members of the Chicago Film Critics Association. I believe our first round ballots, Adam, are due early next week, right around the time we'll be recording. Yeah. So we're going to hash out some of those categories on the podcast proper, some of the major ones. And then we'll continue the discussion for bonus talking about... Oh, we got to nail down exactly which ones, but maybe best score, maybe best editing, maybe best cinematography. Mm -hmm. Some of the minutiae that we do have to vote on, that will all be covered in our bonus episode for Patreon supporters. You can sign up and become one of those Patreon supporters now at patreon.com slash filmspotting. All right, let's get to Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. A couple of weeks ago, Adam and I massacred this scene. Forget it. No, no, no. I know you, what, what you say. Tell me what you say. Well, it's just that risotto costs us a lot. And it takes you a long time to make. I mean, you have to work so hard to make, you know? And then we have to charge more. So I think take it away. Sure. Good. Really? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Maybe instead uh, we could put 
Yes. Tell me, tell me. Well, uh, I was thinking... Um, mm, what... What do they call it? You know, is a... Come to DJ. Managotti? No. Is a... Hot dog? Hot dog? Hot dog? Hot dogs. I think people would like that. That was Tony Shalhoub with the Hot Dogs and Stanley Tucci in Big Night from 1996, written by Tucci and Joseph Trapiano, directed by Tucci and Campbell Scott. Along with that massacre, we reviewed House of Gucci, Tick, Tick, Boom, Spencer, and we presented our Golden Brick shortlist. So why that scene from Big Night? Here's Tom Kuzmarskis. He says, I knew the answer as soon as the word risotto was uttered. It's the wonderful Big Night starring the irreplaceable Stanley Tucci and the magnificent Tony Shalhoub. This being the film Massacred is a bit of a coincidence for me as I just bought Tucci's new memoir slash cookbook. The connection to the show has to be the varying Italian accents in House of Gucci, but might it also have to do with this week being Thanksgiving? I mean... Who wouldn't want Thanksgiving dinner prepared by Primo and served by Secundo, surrounded by good friends and family? Yeah, I could put off the turkey for a year if I was going to mm-hmm. get that. No problem. Tim in Denver also had risotto on his mind as one of my favorite films. You may recall my writing in before about the omelet scene. I recognize Big Night by the end of the first line. While I love the scene you massacred, when I think of risotto in that movie, what first comes to mind is Primo flipping out about a lady wanting spaghetti with her risotto. It's become a thing in my family to call out anyone who wants two starches. <laughs> I think that movie had that impact on all of us. I never contemplated the dilemma of having two starches on my plate until I saw Big Night. <laughs> Tim continues, as far as connections go, my immediate thought was that it was the directorial debut for Stanley Tucci and Campbell Scott, and I really think it should get a retroactive golden brick. There's also the fact that you open the show with a review of a movie about a family with Italian origins by a director with the last name of Scott. Finally, there's the connection that surely many of your listeners were, like me, preparing their own feasts while listening to the show. Finally, David L. Williams, he's in Belfont, PA, says, as someone whose voicemail about this movie was featured on the show, I'm legally obligated to enter this week's Massacre Theater. The film is Stanley Tucci and Campbell Scott's Big Night. No shade on your accent work, gentlemen. I mean, even Ian Holm lapses into a weird Cockney version of Italian at one point, saying, he don't want on his plate, which is his version of he don't want on his plate. Thank you, David. If we only occasionally lapse in our accent work, I will yeah. be I will be very proud. <laughs> Reach into our brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner. Our winner is Jacob Stout from Asheville, North Carolina. Congratulations, Jacob. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt. Would the tattoo so simple? Would the detours the same? Would the detours the same? Would the detours the same? My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say twer? Well, you should say it like I said it. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. I think there's one clear tie-in to our show this week. Maybe Sam, our producer, had some other things on his mind. And even if he didn't, we know you, our listeners, will come up with seven or eight connections that we did not. Are you ready for this, Josh? Are you ready for a little bit more accent work? Yeah, a little bit. I'm excited. We have a, a guest performer with us. That's right. An unna- needed... unnamed guest performer? Or, or are we going to... Yeah, maybe an uncredited? uncredited. Uncredited. We'll see how he does, and we'll see if he <laughs> earns a credit. Okay. How I about like that? that? Okay. <laughs> Good. You're going to start it off. I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? Um, give me a minute. 
Okay, I'm ready. And action. I've got news for you in case you hadn't noticed. I wasn't hit by a train, and I have traveled many a weary mile to be back with my wife and six daughters. Seven, Daddy. That ain't your daddy, Alvinell. Your daddy was hit by a train. Penny, you stop that. No, you stop it. Vernon here's got a job. Vernon's got prospects. He's bona fide. What are you? I'll tell you what I am. I'm the paterfamilias, and you can't marry him. I can, I am, and I will. Tomorrow. I gotta think about the little Warver gals. They look to me for answers. Vernon could support him and buy him lessons on the clarinet. The only good thing you ever did for the gals was to get hit by that train. And <laughs> scene. Get that kid an agent. Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll go ahead and give him credit. Connor Kempinar making oh. his first appearance here <laughs> on Film Spotting. I mean, not only did he nail his line, but he, he helped you elevate your game. Yeah, I feel like I think he did. I working think he did. with you. <laughs> Thank you, Connor. You're welcome. <laughs> we got a you're welcome there. I don't know if it if it came through or not, but if you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. You do have a while to listen to it and listen to it and just take in that great acting and process it and make sure you know the scene. The deadline is Monday, January 3rd. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Can I do all my scenes with Connor from now on? Jen Campion, I, I love you. I love you. Thank you so much for giving me a character and an experience that was so difficult to say goodbye to. Except that I don't have to say goodbye to it because everybody's, it's everybody's now. And that is such a, a gift. Um, and Michael Nyman... I definitely consider the piano to be a gift. That's Holly Hunter accepting her Best Actress Oscar back in 1994 for her performance in Jane Campion's The Piano. Winning an Oscar... Pretty big deal, Adam, but sort of pales in comparison to, you know, winning. What are we, what are we calling these again? <laughs> I think it's the we are the champions, right? Is that where we settled? We are the champions, and I thought I had some pretty good name options, but then we started hearing from our listeners, Andre Cadeau, Charlottesville, Virginia, longtime listener said when Josh mentioned the pianos as a possible name for the awards, it made me think of the Ivories. Maybe someone can think of other possible connections, but it has a nice ring to it. It does, but then a few more came in. Amber Knoll said Grand Championship, mm. the Championship Grand Final, something along those lines. And we also heard from Austin in Omaha, who said, while this suggestion for an awards title has almost nothing to do with any of Jane Campion's films, I feel that my autocorrect has been forever altered due to my letterbox reviews of her films and having to consistently change Champion back to Campion. It's catchy. And for whatever reason, I feel like Harvey Keitel's P.J. Waters from Holy Smoke, my personal favorite film thus far, would appreciate it. I certainly enjoyed this dive into a filmmaker I had zero experience with preceding this review, and I look forward to catching up with The Power of the Dog. Austin adds that he looks forward to the podcast every week, even when Adam shirks the responsibility of catching up with what the rest of us went through with Eternals. <laughs> and he's looking forward to our picks for Campion's champion so we just simplified a little bit what amber and austin were putting down and in homage to queen we are calling this we are the champions some good old-fashioned brainstorming right there. that's it we have come to the end of our champion oeuvre review our chronological series devoted to all eight of her feature films including her latest the power of the dog we'd like to end 
all of the series we do, whether it's devoted to the work of a single director like these Ooh reviews, or it's a marathon devoted to a certain genre, or maybe a single great movie year with some awards, really just to reflect on the series as a whole and evaluate what we appreciated most. For this Ooh review, we're going to share our favorite lead and supporting performances, our favorite scenes, and our campion moments as well as our favorite films. I don't know if you did this or if you already posted it on Letterboxd, but I've got my ranking as hard as it was. And so we can we can do our Campion Oeuvre review list one down to eight. Before we do that, any any major takeaways from this Oeuvre review? Any surprises, Josh? Um, yeah, you know, I have that ranking too. And as I'm looking at it, probably, and I shouldn't have been surprised by this. I kind of expected this, but In the Cut is a film I was mixed to negative on, as a Mm -hmm. lot of people were when it came out. And now it's, you know, jumped up to a really strong tier in her filmography. So that's probably the biggest surprise for me coming away from this overview, I would say. Yeah, my reappraisal and appreciation of In the Cut, as well as, of course, my reappraisal and appreciation for the piano were the surprises for me of this series. A quick recap of the films we covered. Sweetie, her 1989 debut, An Angel at My Table, the 1990 biopic about New Zealand author Janet Frame, followed by The Piano, her 1993 Oscar-winning breakthrough. That was followed by The Portrait of a Lady, Campion's adaptation of the Henry James novel. Then we did 1999's Holy Smoke with Kate Winslet and Harvey Keitel. In the Cut from 2003 with Meg Ryan and Mark Ruffalo, 2009's Bright Star about the relationship between poet John Keats, my man John Keats, and Fanny Braun, and yes, the new power of the dog. We will start as we usually do with our favorite supporting performance. I'll give you some of the nominees here, Josh, and see if I have collected what you think are the best options. Going in order, Sweetie gave us the title character played by Genevieve Lemon. I think you could also maybe throw Tom Lykos into the mix as Lewis. The piano not only had Harvey Keitel, but Sam Neill and Anna Paquin, Oscar-winning Anna Paquin. The Portrait of a Lady, formidable here with John Malkovich, Barbara Hershey, Martin Donovan. Holy Smoke had Harvey Keitel in the cut, Mark Ruffalo, Bright Star, the pig that Paul Schneider is. And The Power of the Dog offers Kirsten Dunst, Jesse Plemons, and Cody Smith-McPhee. I think it came down to these four. You tell me if I'm wrong. Lemon for Sweetie, maybe Paquin for the piano, and then Ruffalo versus Martin Donovan. Where did you come out? Mm. Well, is it weird that my instinct was to only consider men? I mean, what's with this campion? Like always giving short shrift to the men. I don't I don't get it in her movies. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I kind of thought... I could go completely the other way and choose one of her more likable male characters because there aren't a ton. They're very not that they're all villains. They're all complicated, but she does have two really likable ones. You mentioned one of them, Martin Donovan's fading puck, Ralph from The Portrait of a Lady, and then Ben Wishaw's Keats in Bright Star. Maybe that's mm. more of a lead. I, I do feel like Abby Cornish is the lead there, but you know, it seemed truer to her work to choose one of her most complicated male characters, if you're going to go that way. And so I did go with Mark Ruffalo's Detective Malloy in in the cut. Now, generally, I got to say, I don't understand or go for like the bad boy appeal. And I think even more so when those qualities suggest a potentially abusive relationship. And I think that's at play here because Malloy 
for much of the running time, you think he's one of the suspects of of these murders that have sure. taken place. So, so that's you know makes him a little a little dangerous. But man, watching this movie again with more experience with Campion's work, whatever it is, Ruffalo is managing this complete honesty about what he wants from Meg Ryan's Fanny, what he's willing to give her, but then also combined with a really scary anger and a hostility. It just worked on me. I got it. I mean, I got the appeal, Franny. And thankfully on this revisit, yeah, I I got in the cut a little bit more. As I said, it's the Campion title where my feelings shifted the most. They definitely shifted on the performances here, not only Ryan's, but Ruffalo's as Detective Malloy. So that's where I'm going with my best supporting performance pick. Well, first, I'm glad that you did include Ben Wishaw because I somehow overlooked him. And I think he at least needs to be in the running for best supporting. Probably not Best lead performance, though, you're right. I think that's arguable. I think Abby Cornish certainly is the star of that film. I really did struggle between Donovan and Ruffalo. And there was a part of me that wanted to give it to Donovan just because he's a really underappreciated actor who I didn't even know was in this movie. It's one I hadn't seen before. I remember liking him in a lot of Hal Hartley stuff, and he pops up as a character guy in some different films, of course, over the past few decades. But watching him play that character who really is the only kind of sympathetic, warm character in a film that's just filled with snakes, Portrait of a Lady, is really refreshing. But I think I ultimately went like you with Mark Ruffalo just because I think it had a had a bit of a higher degree of difficulty. Mm. Meaning Donovan, he's dying from the very beginning of the film, and you know he's inherently a good person, so of course he's sympathetic. Even though I do think he he gives him some complexity, I think he's a very easy character to like. And Mark Ruffalo really is someone, especially as we see so much of that movie through Meg Ryan's character's eyes and her perspective. He's someone we are a little bit scared of, but someone we are a little bit attracted to. And Ruffalo doesn't overplay anything, but he also doesn't underplay anything. There is, as you said, a real directness to him and that ability to be someone that we can be a little bit scared of, but then at the same time feel like maybe somehow they really should be together and you want them to be together. That's that's enough of a high wire act that I was really surprised, even though maybe I shouldn't be by anything Mark Ruffalo does. I was surprised by how much I liked his performance in In the Cut. Hey, listen, I could be whatever you want me to be. You want me to romance you, take you to a classy restaurant, no problem. You want me to uh, be your best friend and f- treat you good. No problem. Ain't much I haven't done. The only thing I want to do is beat you up. All right. Landed in the same spot for our first category. I like it. Okay, let's see what happens with best lead performance. There's a chance we'll agree here, but I think we're going to diverge. We've got Karen Colston as Kay and Sweetie, Carrie Fox in An Angel at My Table, Holly Hunter, of course, in The Piano, Nicole Kidman, Portrait of a Lady, Kate Winslet, Holy Smoke, Meg Ryan in The Cut, Abby Cornish, Bright Star, or The Lone Dude, Benedict Cumberbatch for The <laughs> Power of the Dog, who got your award. The lone dude, indeed. I like that. So, yeah, Slack Chatter suggests with Sam that this is coming down to two options. Uh, Holly Hunter, 
as Ada in the piano and Kate Winslet as Ruth. Winslet, absolutely bewitching in this movie, as we talked about, partly because similar to Ruffalo, there's an element of danger here. I mean, if if he's the bad boy in some way, she's maybe the bad girl uh, in this scenario. And in this case, I, I really get it. She's fantastic in Holy Smoke. I would add Cumberbatch as equally deserving of consideration uh, right alongside those two. And I'm wondering, I'm really curious to see if that's where you're going to go, Adam. I'm going with Hunter. No surprise to anyone for reasons okay. I'll get into when I talk about my favorite Campion scene. You know, it's just, I'm all in on that performance, but I can respect either a Winslet or a Cumberbatch pick. Which one of those two did you go with? Yeah, it was tough because not only were Hunter and Winslet and Cumberbatch probably my top three, I strongly consider Nicole Kidman, and I really like Meg Ryan and In the Cut as well. Another surprise for me over the course of this series, perhaps because... Like a lot of people, I maybe couldn't quite handle on that first viewing seeing a new type of Meg Ryan. And now, of course, the more mature critic that I am, Josh, I could just appreciate the performance as a really good performance. I also really liked Abby Cornish a lot more than you did, I think, in Bright Star. And even Carrie Fox should be in the running. So you can't yes. go wrong. Yeah, you Carrie Fox, go we wrong. need to mention. Yeah, in this category. But I am going Winslet. For Holy Smoke. Nice. We, we devoted a fair amount of time to her performance and her character when we discussed that movie. And that way, again, that she embodies, like Ruffalo, those contradictions and those complexities. There is a naivete to her and an innocence to her that seems totally believable. And at times, she also suggests she's got a wisdom and just a worldliness that allows her to take over control in that film. Also, an incredibly sensual performance. And that's something she uses to her advantage against Harvey Keitel's character. And something else I know I said during our discussion of that movie, we don't get really any backstory on that character. We meet her in that opening, that great opening to the Neil Diamond song, where we see what she was like before she became part of this cult. And that's enough. There is enough just in Kate Winslet's performance to give us everything we need to know about what kind of daughter she was, what kind of person she was, what she was seeking, what is absent in her life. It's all there, I think, in the character she portrays, even though Campion doesn't devote time to it. She doesn't need to. Winslet gives us everything we need to know. Indeed. I love it. I'm never going to complain about more praise given to Kate Winslet. What do you like about me? Do you like my personality or do you like my breasts best? All right, Ruth, right now I like your breasts. It's just the way it is. You can't stop me from having sexual thoughts about you. Oh, yeah? And what do you think? What are your thoughts? They're private. <laughs> well, not the other night. How was it for you? A bit revolting. So that brings us to our favorite Campion moment. And a lot of times there's overlap in this category that we always do with any series, something that defines the filmmaker or the set of films for us and overall our best scenes or moments. But this category really is about getting at the heart of what 
we think Jane Campion's work is all about. And I thought I'd bring in some reinforcements, Josh. There was a big profile recently of Jane Campion in the New York Times Magazine, and the author says this, The piano offers a blueprint to Campion's creative preoccupations. The feminine confronting the masculine in exchanges marked by both violence and desire. The use of landscape to evoke psychological states, mothers and daughters, family units struggling with feelings of love, alienation and betrayal. Her films and her one foray into prestige television, Top of the Lake, have in common a series of traumatized heroines in confrontation with terror, desire and the sublime. Domestic spaces are full of intimacy and danger. Sex blows life wide open in starshine or devastation. The threat of violence glimmers around the edges of daily life, irradiating it. Do you think there's anything missing there from that paragraph? Oh, man, that's good stuff. That, it is. That, who, who was that? That covers it. Jordan Kistner, I believe, is okay. the writer. I will verify that in case I'm wrong. Nice. Yeah, I think, and, and here was where I instinctively went, though my winner, I don't know, we can debate whether it falls into this category, but I went with insert shots that capture those very things. I just thought back to, I think this is unique to her as a filmmaker, where she would drop in her movies, images not needed, unnecessary for the narrative, the plot, whatever, but just little things she caught, or I don't know, maybe planned, that just evoke the exact thematic, emotional, psychological experience of what we're watching. So, Angel at My Table. Here, here are some of my nominees. Angel at My Table. When the adult Janet Frame returns home after the death of her father, we get a quick close-up of her stepping out of her pumps into her father's boots. I don't remember how long it lasts. Maybe it's more pronounced and it's like 20 seconds. But I, in my memory, it's like you know a three-second almost insert shot. Portrait of a Lady. We both keyed in on this one, Adam. That slow slide into slow motion that we get when mm -hmm. um, one character smells a flower that's been given to her and another character notices how much she's how much she's investing in smelling that flower and Campion employs slow motion. Bright Star, the butterfly on the handle of the door as it turns and Power of the Dog, the paper flower, a couple of them in here, right? The paper flower that uh, Peter, the college-age son, makes and that Phil really abuses, you mm -hmm. could say, in a couple of ways. Uh, and how about later in the film, that image of bloody hands being shoved into a pail of water, just the momentousness of what that means, in that case, narratively, but also just kind of symbolically. So I considered all of those. Here's one I want to throw out there, just because we're giving Holy Smoke a lot of love, and I like that. It's not an insert shot, but how about the moment where the male family members encircle Ruth and kind of won't let her? I mean, that's just kind of like... It's reductive to think about Campion as purely a feminist filmmaker. She's much yes. more than that. But if you want to emphasize that that's a strong thread of her oeuvre... That image is perfect, right? Of of that's, those men, yeah, circling. That's, that's going to be a nice transition into my winner here in a second. Okay, well let me let me get on and I'll get out of get out of your way. But my winner, not quite an insert shot, not really a scene. It's the sunken piano in the piano. It's that image, and here's what I love about it: is that we return to it. It's the final image in the film, but it comes. After we've already seen that Ada and Baines are happy together, they've they've established a new life together, and and most movies would end there, right? Like we've had this traumatic experience. Our main character has found her place in this world. Let's all go home feeling good. That's not Campion. So we go back to what we saw before. This image when Ada was pulled or jumped, 
can have that debate. I think she, quote unquote, jumped into the water after the piano. She's tied to the cord that's wrapped to the rope that's wrapped to the piano. And we get this image at the bottom of the tempestuous bay. It's ghostly. We have the sort of, it must be Ada because that's how we saw it before. But who is it now? Because we know she's safe, but she's still there floating above the piano. And so it's just suggestive. It's it's metaphorically malleable in so many ways. It's in the murk where Campion likes to be. And that's why I think for me, the sunken piano is is the Campion moment from this overview. Great choice. I think you're going to definitely approve of mine. But first, I'll go back to the New York Times paragraph and just say the only thing that maybe was missing from that nice articulation of the prevailing themes and ideas in her films is her preoccupation with outsiders, characters who are on the fringes often and then connected to that characters who are artists or aspiring artists, or at least have some kind of artist or artistic temperament. I think we even see that to some extent with Benedict Cumberbatch in The Power of the Dog. I didn't focus on any one type of scene, though I love that you focus on those insert shots, which we did devote some time to over the course of these movies. But I did realize that my top contenders are all opening sequences. In fact, even credit sequences. One of them is the one I already mentioned, the Neil Diamond song is our soundtrack to the journey from seeker to believer that we see in like three minutes at the beginning of Holy Smoke. And then you've got that wonderful anachronistic voice opening to the portrait of a lady, modern women reflecting on being kissed and romance and what they love about being kissed. And then we see them dance and we also see women in portrait, like the title suggests. Nothing you would expect in any type of adaptation of a Henry James novel. If you thought you were in for a period piece and you ultimately are, it takes its own kind of meandering way to get there. It's a really wonderful start. This one, though, is my favorite. It's still, technically, I didn't realize this until I rewatched today, part of the credits. I'm going with the piano and I'm going with water, Josh. It's Ada's anxious boat exit. Mm. So the sequence here is her playing the piano at her former home that she's about to leave. We get a close-up of Holly Hunter as a woman comes to the door, essentially signaling that it's time to go. We cut from that to a shot from under the boat, and you hear the sound of the paddles and the sloshing of the water, then to a shot of men's hands in the air stretching up as another set of hands and a body eventually appear silhouetted against the sky. You're really not sure because of the the camera framing and the composition and because of the lighting who or what you're actually looking at. And then finally, a cut gives you a slightly wider view and you see that it's Ada and her daughter, Flora. But even then, you're still not completely sure what's happening because the camera stays poised on Ada's face as she is awkwardly being jostled about by these hands. Only then, at the end of the scene, do we cut out to a very wide shot and you see clearly that, oh, it's mother and daughter who are being lifted out of the boat and being carried to shore so that they don't get wet. And I love the filmmaking. I love the unconventionality of giving us the establishing shot at the end of the sequence, 
<laughs> deliberately to disorient and disturb us just as much as Ada is in this moment. What could have been a throwaway kind of transition moment, or maybe even one of some beauty, their bodies being lifted off the boat heroically by these men. No, this is Campion. So she finds not only a boldly expressive way to shoot the sequence, but she does it in a way that taps into attention that the entire movie is ultimately going to be about and that many of her movies are about. And that's Ada's uneasy relationship to Ben, their perceived dominion and control over her, and the actual physicality of it too. Their hands all over her body, touching her. Yes. Like George desires to, but is forbidden to while she plays. And of course, how important ultimately are fingers and hands to this movie? Ada's playing, Ada's punishment. That's my campion moment. All right. I do love it. And since you mentioned fingers, should I just get right to my best scene? Do it. Okay. Uh, real quickly, the nominees, I did actually consider from In the Cut those old-timey ice skating sequences, mm -hmm. which are not really, they're kind of like flashbacks or family stories, but they're also heightened in this fable, fairy-like scenario. And of course, this being a slasher film, really, it includes legs being sliced in half by the skates. Just really jarring. Can't imagine anyone else but Campion including that. And then we talked about it in our review of The Power of the Dog, Banjo versus Piano. It's going to be, you know, one of one of the great Campion scenes. But yeah, my winner here for best scene also comes from the piano. It's Ada's finger when Alistair chops it off in his fury. This is tied to my pick for Hunter. I talked about it at length in our review of the piano, so I won't go into it too much here. But just that terrible zen that Hunter goes into in the wake of losing her finger and the journey on her face to get there, right? From the shock to the pain to the despair to that strange sort of resolution that she finds. The topography that's involved here, the mud and the rain, all of this stuff that's been oppressively either pouring down on us or sucking us in throughout the whole movie here just really comes to the fore. The costuming, Ada's dress billowing as she sinks into the mud, that exhausted gasp that the costume gives. This is just where everything we've been anxious about, everything we've been dreading might happen in this movie comes to a physical and emotional head. And it's perfectly captured by the performance and by the imagery all in concert. So that's my choice for best scene. Okay, well, I'm going to go with something a little lighter and fluffier, Josh. But before that, a couple other scenes I considered. The introduction to Harvey Keitel's character in Holy Smoke, which is maybe the funniest single moment in Campion's entire yeah, filmography. I think you're right, actually. Yeah. <laughs> and for a film that, spoiler alert, I did put at the very bottom of my ranking of Campion's films, even though there was a lot to digest and to praise— Portrait of a Lady, it gave me many moments and scenes that I thought were worthy of consideration. That Maya Darren-inspired surrealistic travel montage that Campion gives us, the fantasy scene, that fantasy sex scene where she dreams about three different men kind of having their way with her. And you mentioned the slow motion look in the carriage as well. But ultimately, I had to give some love to my man, John Keats. I had to go with Bright Star. My favorite overall scene, the room of butterflies. Mm. The, the romanticism of that expression of her love 
for John coming out of his expression of his love for her. He says in a letter, they're apart at this time. I almost wish we were butterflies and lived but three summer days. Three such days with you I could fill with more delight than 50 common years could ever contain. And what do we then see? Her in her bedroom with her little sister. And the room has now become completely overtaken by these butterflies that they have caught. And of course, this being a Jane Campion movie, the butterflies are really pretty to look at. And they're shot in a really pretty way. And even the the colors on the wings of the first butterfly we see have the same blue tint to them that we see in the room and that we see in their dresses and that we see in some of the flowers throughout the course of the film. And something about her taking that so literally, understanding clearly the metaphor and understanding what he is suggesting, but being so taken with it, being so overwhelmed by it that she actually feels the need to bring it to life and surround herself with these butterflies is really, for me, the indelible image from that film and from all of Campion's films that we saw. Yeah, and that's obviously where that insert shot I referenced comes from of the butterfly and the door handle, which complicates things, right? Which Campion is always trying to do is it's it's kind of like there's something to me about that closed door and, and just giving this sense of um, something blocking her from where Fanny Braun, from like where she would like to be, even though she's immersed in this romantic, poetic environment with the butterflies, there's a reality as well in that door handle. Mm -hmm. That's a part of what's at play. Okay, that brings us to Best Picture and our rankings of the eight films that we watched as part of this series. Josh, take it away. All right, so this is nonsense, the ranking of filmmakers that we do. We always have to (laughs) give that preamble, but I do think it's helpful you know, for conversation to talk in terms of tiers. And it depends on the filmmaker. It depends how many films they've made. Campion doesn't have a bad tier. Let me reiterate, I've liked all of these films. I think for me, there's three different tiers among the eight. However, I would put The Piano and the Power of the Dog on their own, just like one of the all-time filmmakers. Again, working on all, clicking on all cylinders here for those two films. And then my next tier would be An Angel at My Table, In the Cut, Big jump for In the Cut from the first time I saw it. And then Sweetie. I think those three are like, uh, you know, almost as close as those top two. And then the the last three that I thoroughly enjoyed, but I just think are working at a different level, would be Holy Smoke, The Portrait of a Lady, and Bright Star. So all of that to say, it really comes down to the power of the dog and the piano. There's a chance, you know, I don't know how many times I've seen the piano, but there's a chance if I end up seeing The Power of the Dog as many times Maybe it'll overtake the piano. I highly doubt it. I think it's just the piano is still something about that male lead, I think, is always going to be the pure camping experience. But yeah, for me, it's the piano. That's all I'm going to say, because people are probably sick of me talking about it. So I'll leave it there. Well, I'm going to try not to take offense to Bright Star being at the bottom, though you will not get the same from my daughter, Sophie, who is still livid at your letterbox. I know. She like like, came out at me on the comments, and I felt terrible. (laughs) Felt terrible. She is so all in on Bright Star, and she's my daughter because I am as well. I'm with you, though. I think I have three tiers, really, maybe three and a half. I'll explain in a moment. At the bottom is Holy Smoke and the Portrait of a Lady, Portrait of a Lady 8, Holy Smoke 7. I've got then the next tier, her first two films, Sweetie and An Angel at My Table, followed by this tier of three movies that I found almost impossible to rank. 
But for right now, I've got them in this order. In the cut, fourth. The piano, third. And yeah, I'm with Sophie. I got Bright Star at two. Whether wow. it feels like the Campion outlier or not, here's our friend Lisa Nelson. She's in Navasota, Texas. She says, I just finished my rewatch of The Transcendent Bright Star, and I'd forgotten just how lovely a film it is. Slowly and ever so carefully, the movie puts its spell on you until you, like Fanny and Keats, are entirely under its power. You are swept up in its vivid poetry, its manic mood swings, and its enchanting lyrical beauty. It makes you feel the intensity of first love and the dire heartache at the prospect of losing that love. But in the end, we are left with the sheer magic of those stolen semi-private moments between Fanny and Keats, where they are sharing a knock between rooms or a clever game of red light, green light. It is truly my favorite Campion film and one of the best romances ever committed to celluloid. Take that, Josh. Lisa didn't say that. Thanks for <laughs> suggesting the rewatch. Lisa did say, yeah, Bright Star. I couldn't agree more, though. I don't think I could have said it as well as Lisa just did. It's my number two. And if there's an additional half tier I'm just saying slightly higher, deserving of that number one spot, Power of the Dog. Wow. You said you said she's at the peak of her powers. I think you're right. Wow. I mean, obviously, you know, I don't know why I'm so surprised. I've got ranked number two, um, but did not think you would go. That's a really interesting ranking to go from Power of the Dog to Bright Star. More power, lovely film. I think that's the perfect word for it. More power to those who do Love it. I'll just reiterate, you know, especially in the context of this overview, what I think I said when we reviewed it is if I'm feeling comfortable during a Campion film, something's not entirely right. And that's just such a comforting movie. Not in the context of that film and that experience, nothing wrong with that. But as we're looking at this, you know, career as a whole, I just can't can't rank it quite that high. Putting it last does not mean I dislike it. No, no mischaracterization will I allow here by you or so. I, I hope all of your English professors back in school have disavowed you. That's <laughs> well, what I think, Josh. I think that's what you deserve. Okay, we'll see. I'll check in with them. <laughs> More about the Campion Oeuvre review at filmspotting.net slash Campion. You can also learn about our previous Oeuvre review, our inaugural Oeuvre review devoted to the work of Christopher Nolan. Are we going to continue this in 2022, Josh? Probably. Yeah, I hope it's so. It's been rewarding so far. We do have new films from the likes of Claire Denis, Martin Scorsese, though that would be a long project. Oh my David gosh, we better, start, we better start yesterday. David Fincher, Terrence Malick, Richard Linklater, among others. I don't, I don't have a horse in this race yet. I think we also put out on our website, I think we did throw out maybe Denis Villeneuve, though that was an option really when we were leading up to Dune though he is a filmmaker whose work I'd like to revisit in order, I think, at some point. As I said, don't really have a favorite right now, Josh. Don't know if you do, but if our listeners do, or you have a better suggestion, we'd love to hear it. You can send that along with any other thoughts about this show to feedback at filmspotting.net. I mean, I'd love to do Scorsese because I want to be a completist, but as you suggested, that whew, that would be a lot to take yeah. on. Claire Denis is probably another one that sounds really appealing, but there might be others. So basically the context is if there is a, a major filmmaker who has a new release coming out in 2022, preferably, you know, probably from June on, so we'd have time to do this, um, suggest their name and we might be able to catch up or revisit their entire filmography leading up to that release. 
That is the end of our show. If you want to continue the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over in the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. You can also vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We want to know what is the best film of 2021. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit Filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out in wide release this weekend, National Champions, about a star quarterback who ignites a player strike hours before the biggest game of the year in order to fight for fair compensation. And yes, you can now finally see in theaters the movie that we saw and recommended on last week's show, Steven Spielberg's West Side Story. Next week here on Film Spotting, we will talk about Licorice Pizza, the latest from Paul Thomas Anderson, and we will share our choices in select categories from our Chicago Film Critics Association ballots, including our favorite lead and supporting performances of the year. Yes, the look back at 2021 starts in earnest. It gets serious next week here on the show. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.